Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 261 being recorded on Wednesday, April 21st, 2021. That's a lot of 21s. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Jason, this week on the show, we have a really exciting guest. He's a renaissance man of sorts. He's been a VC, an operator, a consultant, and an investment banker. You and I love his annual mega presentations that dig into various tech trends, and he also has an awesome weekly newsletter that I highly recommend called What Mattered in Tech This Week. Listeners, please welcome Benedict Evans to the Jason and Scott Show. Hello. Hey, uh, Benedict. We are thrilled to have you Um it's uh, and it's a uh, it's creating a special occasion for us. I rarely get to uh, talk to Scott during daylight hours, but um, but because of your time zone, we're we're talking in the middle of the day. It's fun. Cool. Uh, well, it's, it's good to hear you. I listen to the podcast, so um, especially the ones about statistics. So it's always good to chat about this stuff. You you are like one of eight listeners that enjoy my deep dives in statistics. Uh, well, as a former equity analyst, like I want to know what the number is. I'm not happy with saying like. Source statista. I want to know well, where's the number from and what is it? What does it mean? Yeah, there's there. Uh, I feel like I thread this really fine line. The overwhelming majority of people don't want to be overwhelmed with the numbers, and then the eight people that are interested in the numbers, I'm always nervous are going to realize that my numbers are wrong. So it does. It seems like it's a very narrow audience of like you know my mom that's willing to to take my content exactly as is. Uh, but enough about me. Uh, Scott gave some of the highlights, but um, can you walk us through your your career a little bit, Benedict, and how you got an interest in all this stuff? Sure. So I did a degree in history. I went into investment banking as a sell-side equity analyst. So I wrote research about mobile operators back when mobile networks were amazing and exciting dynamic growth companies. And then I went and worked in strategy and BD in media and telecoms companies for a while. And then as a consultant advising um, media, telecom, technology companies. And then from 2014 to 2019, end of 2019, I worked for Andreessen Horowitz, which is a venture capital firm in Silicon Valley with sort of $15 billion under management that invests in people making new companies. Um, sometimes actually around e-commerce, mostly around software to help other people do e-commerce. But among other things, they invested in Instacart. Um, and um, then at the beginning of last year, I decided to move back to London and do my own thing. Um, and so I, yeah, and sort of picking up some things I'd already been doing. So I have a, a weekly newsletter um, of sort of what are my notes for the week. And I have a, a website where I write about stuff and I do a big, as you said, like a big presentation um, and so I've been doing that for the last sort of 18 months or so, um, which has kind of been interesting just in its own right of, you know, what is it like to um, try and do content in a world where suddenly you can't meet everybody. And yet, on the other hand, suddenly everybody on Earth is willing to meet you by video. Yeah. And I, I would argue also con- uh, seemingly consuming more content. It is. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting, mean, we can maybe go into this later, but I had this sort of interesting moment a couple of weeks ago. Well, I was asked to speak at a conference in September in Zurich. And I thought, actually, that's a choice now. Because in 2019, you either went or you didn't do the business. And in 2020, it had to be video. And now it's a question, should that be video or should I go there? And why would I go there? You know, Do I want to go to Zurich? Would there be a benefit to me to meeting lots of people at the event? Should I hang around after I presented? Um And we're now, I think, just sort of trying to work out what all of that means in lots of different spheres, whether it's, you know, remote work or e-commerce or um, productivity, all kinds of different questions. As we kind of we've had this sort of 18 months of forced experiment where everybody has to try working from home and ordering everything on the web. We don't quite know where it's going to settle. No, for sure. I think that experiment is still ongoing because I'm I'm like you. I'm, I'm starting to get these. 
these optional in-person invites and it's it's very unclear uh uh what my criteria needs to be for those so uh still still sort of sorting it out um i i am i'm fascinated you you moved uh back to the uk not too long before the pandemic right was it yeah, well, I was sort of fed up of living in a city with no museums or art galleries or interesting shops. And of course, I landed straight into the lockdown. So like, my timing wasn't, wasn't kind of wasn't <laughs> ideal. You know, so, so it's a line from airplane, you know, I, I picked the wrong year. Um, yeah. It turned out OK. Yeah. And to give listeners an idea of your standards, you, you moved from San Francisco. Like they might have thought you just moved from like like Bozeman, Montana or something. <laughs> but, but like by, by U.S. standards, that's on the high end of culture. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's what they tell themselves a lot. I, oh, I, yeah, I'm not disputing it. Just, just uh, stating the fact. Um, and I am, I am mildly concerned for you because I, I, I do feel like moving to the UK has one significant disadvantage. Um, you went from a place where your uh, accent, like, automatically conveys credibility and authority to a, to a place where you're just another dude with a newsletter. Well, this is true. Yes, of course, the accent doesn't really come across in the newsletter. It is interesting. I think it actually works both ways in that sort of over a certain level, like any foreigner, I think, sort of automatically gets attributed a greater intelligence. It's like, well, if you manage to move and come here, you must know stuff. So like Americans in Britain generally are regarded as being sort of feeble minded. But, you know, once they've got a job, then they're regarded as, well, they must know something. Yeah, my strategy is to move to Australia because I feel like that's the one place where I could sound reasonable. No, it could work. It could work. <laughs> um, you don't drink enough for Australia. The, uh, but they do have Starbucks, so you'd be okay. A uh, couple of follow-ups on your career. When you were at Andreessen Horowitz, um, you know, what was your – did you have a focus area or, or were you more of a generalist? Well, so I think – well, so two, two ways to answer. So when I went – Smartphones were the thing. And I'd been talking a lot about smartphones along, sort of interesting, I was talking about this with, with somebody the other day. I've been talking a lot about smartphones in public online along with Horace Dedu, um, who you may know. Mm-hmm. And the sort of the interesting thing was that sort of both of us were people who came from the industry and knew how to do the analysis and how to make the charts and were allowed to talk about it in public. So there are lots of people in investment banks or Nokia or Apple who knew all this but couldn't talk about it in public. And there are lots of people who are interested but, like, didn't know that Nokia published quarterly unit shipments on their investor relations website. And so then – but and so I, I sort of built up this profile um, of, of publishing stuff online because I had a job. I was a consultant, so I was freelance, so I could say stuff in public. And so I was a, I was a smartphone guy. Um, mm-hmm. certain point, smartphones stopped being interesting because it happened. Right, 90% of the developed world has a smartphone now. Four and a half billion people out of, say, five and a half billion adults on Earth have a smartphone. It's not interesting anymore. It's like talking about broadband adoption in like 2010. Like we get it, it happened. And I think there's a sort of a general point there in tech that the point that you understand something is generally the point that it's time to start looking for something else. It's kind of the point that it's become boring and, you know, it's not what's the important, where the important questions are. Um, and so there was a time when that was, you know, PCs in the 90s. Like, is a PC a thing? Or was it going to be interactive TV? Well, that like, stopped being an interesting conversation. Um, same with smartphones. Like, it happened. App stores happened. What next? And so on one axis, that becomes, well, let's think about machine learning and crypto and regulation. On another, it's let's think about what my old boss, Mark Andreessen, called software is eating the world, which is, Basically, what happens when four or five billion people are online? You know, what happens with mass mass internet adoption? Um, which is kind of like it's like being in like 1950 or 1960 and saying, well, like the last 50 years was how does everybody get a car and what is a car and what is a car company? And the next 50 years is McDonald's and Walmart and what happens when everyone has a car? And so you could kind of say, well, that's sort of where we are in tech now. Like the last 50 or 60 years is how does everyone get a computer? And the next 50 years is well, what happens because of that? Whatever it is, I, I suppose what I'm getting at is like the questions just keep changing. So when I was there, I was looking at smartphones. Now I don't really look at smartphones very much. Got it. Okay, cool. Uh, and then, um, you know, it's interesting. If I understand, you're you're doing some, uh, I saw on LinkedIn, you're doing some work with some investors, but that looks kind of like part-time. Um, it seems like your full-time gig is really kind of being part of the creator economy. Is that is that a fair characterization? 
Yeah, I suppose so. Yes, yeah. so I mean, maybe I was. I had an NFT, Avon La Lettre, when I started a, sent out a newsletter in like 2013. Um, it's a bit like you know the, the joke that you know I didn't realize I was doing machine learning. I thought I was just making if statements in Excel. I didn't know it was a neural network, and it's kind of so I didn't know I was making an NFT. I thought I just sent a newsletter. Um, and, and and so yeah, um, I suppose I am. Yes. I mean, in a sense, that's sort of only partially true because I suppose sort of only some portion of what I do is actually selling content in some form. Some portion of it is, you know, more conventional speaking and talking and working with people in person or, you know, by Zoom. Um, so, you know, I give presentations. I spend sort of a day a week as a venture partner with a, a London firm called Mosaic, um, which invests in, you know, Series A, C stage software companies in Europe. Um, and that's you know, fairly straightforward venture capital. Um, but I do a bunch of different things. Now, hold it a second. Are, does Mark Andreessen allow you to work for a company called Mosaic? That's not, yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure if that was consciously a reference or not, but um, there's certainly a connection in there somewhere. Only like five of our listeners got that joke, and I was one of them. All right, uh, let's uh, let's jump into one of our favorite topics, which is e-commerce. Um, you know, so... Maybe uh, I know we've had some interesting Twitter conversations of, of the impact of COVID on e-commerce. And uh, one of Jason's favorite graphs is that one that shows that we've like almost tripled our adoption uh, here in the United States, <laughs> which he, he yeah, I, I'm joking because he takes uh, offense at that. Um, but what have you seen? Uh, so you went, you had this interesting perspective of you kind of know the U.S. market and then now you've been there in the U.K. slash London what are you seeing as far as e-commerce impact during COVID? Well, so several different observations. One of them is we actually have pretty good data for the US and the UK, um, much less good data for the rest of Europe, or at any rate, much harder to get and harder to compare. Um, second observation would be the UK and Europe in general had a much stronger lockdown than the US. The US had a sort of a strong lockdown in some places, but not kind of nationally. Whereas the UK basically shut down for the last three months. Um, and third observation is sort of whatever you make of that, um, the US went from sort of 16% to sort of a bit over 20% penetration, if you exclude gasoline and restaurants and things. Um, on the same basis, the UK went from 20% to 30%. And it's been sort of bouncing around a bit and it had a second lockdown, but the UK is sort of stabilizing at about 30%. Um, most of the rest of Europe was three to five years behind the UK. I mean, there's this old joke that when the apocalypse comes, you want to be in France because everything happens five years later there. Um, and that's kind of, sort of kind of what happens in tech. Um, I, the French kind of ruling class, the French newspaper reading class, have suddenly discovered Amazon and are having all the kind of moral panics that we were having about Amazon like five years ago. Um, and they're like, there's a data from Eurostat. They don't have penetration data, but they do have usage data. And in 2019, I think only about 38, 39% of all Italians made any online purchase at all. So you've got this very wide spread across Europe of adoption and basically the UK and like the small northern. So, you know, the Scandies, Belgium, Netherlands and so on are ahead um, of the USA Southern Europe, big, the big European countries are like five years behind the USA. Um, but of course, the lockdown has been this sort of catalyst to make everybody at least try this stuff and pull it forward. Um, the other number is in the, if you exclude grocery, which is sort of, you know, a third of retail sales or something. Um, so if you exclude grocery sales and look at everything else in the UK, it's now 40% e-commerce. So... We're now at this sort of point where it's no longer a segment or even, you know, something. for a long time it was something that some people did for some things and now it's something that everyone does for everything. But you're now at this real tipping point where you're having kind of a lot of major retailers disappear or radically pull back. And a lot of people asking, okay, well, what is this going to look like? What is the world of physical retail even going to be um, as we come out of this? And I feel like that's probably, I mean, I don't have the, the U.S. direct U.S.-U.K. comparison. Um, clearly, like U.S. department stores and things have been in long-term decline. Um, but I don't think the U.S. is at the stage of like 40% of the mall is gone. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. Um, the Like, I, I'd be curious to unpack it just a little bit. Like, so 
and and these aren't perfect numbers, but rough numbers for for conversation purposes. If you kind of use the same definition of retail, um, the U.S. is going to have about twenty five percent e commerce penetration versus I've seen thirty five to forty in the U.K. Um, so so I think it it clearly is is wildly ahead. Like in my mind, there are three things going on there. Like in in both countries, there's there's a lockdown impact, and per your point, the lockdown. Um, played out differently. And in the U.S., it it played out very differently, just depending on where you lived. But there's, uh, hey, we're all getting less clothes. And what clothes we do get, we're way more likely to get online, stuff like that. Right. So um, the there's a um, overstored impact, which I do think is unique to the U.S. Like we we forex the amount of stores per capita in the U.S. that that you had in the U.K. So there was there was a long overdue correction, um, and the COVID was further impetus for that that correction. And then there is, I think, at the moment, a fundamental difference to how um, uh, people in the United Kingdom and people in the U.S. get groceries digitally. Like the uh, the U.K. was far in advance of the U.S. in terms of digital grocery adoption before the pandemic. So in the U.S., there was this huge thing. Over half the population tried ordering bananas online for the first time ever. Um, and while I'm sure there was some cohort of new new grocery shoppers in the UK as well, it was it was less. And part of me thinks, like fundamentally, the UK is an island with much greater density. Like mo- like the bananas, like we call it. It's ironic that we call it shipping because the bananas don't have to get on a boat to go. Like any, <laughs> um, the, there's not a ship involved in the UK very often. Um, the, so, so, well, yeah. some, I mean, there's interesting stuff in here because, well, so two things to, to say. One of them is, so yes, the UK was sort of 5% online grocery penetration and not actually growing that fast. I mean, it got to 5% in a straight line since about 2000, basically. And it went 10% more or less overnight and stayed there. And it's still, and now has gone up a little bit more and went into the second lockdown. I should say, incidentally, for all of these numbers, this is not being distorted by the fact that total retail sales went down. So this is after total retail sales went back up to the same level. It's still at that high level. Um, so the UK went from 5% to 10%. I think the US is sort of half that at most. Um, the other question I was thinking of is how much variation is there in the USA? To your point about density, if we were doing this analysis for New England or for California, would this look different? Would the numbers be higher? I mean, I don't know. I mean, the BLS has just started doing some numbers, but there's, I wonder how much the US, lo- the lower US penetration is skewed by um, the flyover states, if I'm, you're allowed to call it that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, um, I, I haven't seen definitive data, but my sense, so a, a very interesting distinction, the overwhelming majority of digital grocery in the US is curbside pickup. Um, so we all think of the milk getting delivered to the house, but but something like 80% of all the digital grocery orders in the U.S. are a customer going to a store and picking up all their bags in the parking lot instead of, uh, yeah. of having them delivered. And that's largely because the unit economics just don't work in most of the U.S. Uh, um, neighborhoods. Yeah, it's, a, it's a density point. With exactly. The UK, you know, I mean, I'm sort of sitting in my, this hat in this, it's my study looking out of the window in this sort of, I'm in an Edwardian, you know, it looks like it's not like Brooklyn, but it's, you know, know, Edwardian five bedroom houses. And there's, you know, practically queues of grocery delivery vans sometimes. So all I mean, it's part of the point is that the UK retail industry is just much more competitive than the US retail industry, which you sort of gets hidden by the fact that the US has lots of supermarkets, but they're all kind of regionally dominant. Whereas the UK, there's like five supermarkets I could shop from from here five different chains. And so there is a Tesco truck, an Ocado truck, a Safeway truck, um, and a Sainsbury truck going down the street twice a day, every day. And there are all these custom-built refrigerated trucks. Um, and so that, the, you know, that degree of density does change things. I think the other thing that's happening right now, and it sort of goes on to a kind of a broader point, is there's now a wave of sort of one- and two-hour guy on the back of a bike grocery delivery startups. One of them is this Turkish company called Getir or Getir, I can't remember what it's called now. And there's like three of them. And they're all based on basically dark stores um, in light industrial areas around residential areas. Um, 
and it's guys on bikes bringing you two bottle a bottle of milk a pack of pasta a bottle of olive oil and you know whatever they can fit in the bike and it's sort of topping up the big so you do the big weekly shop which might move to delivery but then you've got this i need it's a 50 pound 75 dollar spend top up which is also happening um and that's also, of course, about density and how often you need it and what you're willing to pay and the logistics of that. Yeah, no, it's uh, and that is fascinating. Like, I, um, I feel like you've highlighted what to me is the next digital wave of grocery. Like the the first way, like the the biggest money to be made is on those these big shops. Right. So if you can win a bunch of those customers that get 60 to 120 items um, in, in their cart, like the the unit economics are easier there. And that's in the U S certainly where all the, the big grocers focused their attention, but, but you're absolutely right. Like there's a, a totally different mission that people use grocery stores. And in the U S the, the providers are heavily fragmented, right? So you're going to go to Kroger, Walmart, or, or, um, Albertsons to get your, your big grocery shop. But if you live in a, a, um, urban city, you're probably going to a bodega to get a, a bagel or a coffee or, or, you know, replenish the sugar you just ran out of, right? Like all those, those top ups, you know, tend to get served by these smaller local grocery stores. And now we're seeing a boom in, in e-commerce for those, those top ups. So here in the U S we've got, um, GoPuff, which is kind of a, a, a purpose built delivery network that really focuses on that top up. And then you have folks like DoorDash that grew up in, in meal delivery, trying to kind of move over into the, those top up missions as well. So it's, that's going to be interesting in the UK is that, are they the same providers that are doing the top ups and the. They're different. No, they're different companies. Well, so yes and no. So some of the supermarkets have that top up thing as well, because what the supermarkets have done in the UK over the last 20 years is they created what they call a metro format, which is sort of like a bodega-sized store that it's open 24 hours and it's and it's got a limited, more limited selection. But it's you know it's a double, it's two or three shop fronts wide, and it's um, it's a Tesco metro or it's a Sainsbury's metro, and so they're using those as endpoints um, for a guy on a bike at the same time. Um, I mean, the other interesting thing there, you know, just talking about DoorDash, is the number from Uber last week that there were like I think a 30 billion dollar run rate on rides and now 52 billion dollar run rate on Uber Eats and one of the things well sort of sort of two kind of link links sort of things in here one of these one I sort of one of the points I wanted made in the presentation I did in January was that instead of thinking about e-commerce by product category and saying well books are different from makeup which are different from shoes which are different from I don't know, like consumer electronics, which are different from something else. Instead, you should split it into parcels versus delivery versus bikes. And so on that basis, there's everything that can go into a brown cardboard box, which is basically the way Amazon sees the world, and everything that can't, which is either a refrigerated truck or you go to the grocery store or it gets brought to you on on the back of a bike. Um, And in that category, you basically have grocery and restaurant um and looking at the numbers i mean i, I kind of struggled with mentioned numbers earlier i got wildly conflicting numbers based on which research i looked at but it looked like something like a third to a half of u.s restaurant spending is actually takeout or delivery anyway and like was before the internet yeah my numbers it, it, it was close to 50 before and it and was like well over 70 of course off-prem was well over 70 during the pandemic yeah. And, and I think like the, the interesting general thing I was thinking about this is a like split e-commerce into can it be a cardboard box or a bike or a truck or collection. But the other thing I was sort of thinking is like if you just forget about e-commerce for a minute and you kind of ask the question, well, why is it that you buy a pint of milk from a completely different kind of store from a bed or a couch? Why does Ikea have a giant store in the edge of town and Walmart have a giant store in the edge of town and the bodega doesn't? And like we know the answer, but like if you kind of systematize that, it's like there's like an algebra of cost per square foot, how urgently you need it, how willingly far you're willing to go, how often you need it, how big the inventory is, you know, add 20 more criteria that get you like a kind of a multidimensional scatter plot of 
Ikea versus a department store versus a high-end boutique versus a bodega versus pick 10 other retail categories. And sort of what the internet does is it's kind of like it adds freeways. And so it enables a whole class of, of new kind of retailers. So like it's like freeways and cars enable big box retail for the sake of argument and enable a different kind of supermarket where you can fill up your car as opposed to having it to carry it home. And the internet like adds a whole bunch more criteria in the same way to that whole logistics question, um, which gets you both, to my point, like the one hour grocery delivery versus the weekly shop. And it gets you that question, do I go there or do they come here? And what do I pay on each side? Which is sort of a way of saying, like, maybe instead of saying the internet is completely new, we should say this is just like another wave of change in retail. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that framing. And um, it's interesting. Um, so so it wouldn't be a Jason Scott show if we didn't talk a little bit about Amazon. And I noticed uh, you didn't mention them as one of the trucks coming through your neighborhood. Makes me So, so have they just basically um, seeded the UK grocery delivery space? Oh, they do, but they're not in grocery delivery. So they... Of course, so there's, I mean, it's the, um, sort of someone was saying, what's the, you know, the children's game where you ring the doorbell and run away? What do you call that? That's called Parcel Force, um, which is one of the courier firms here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, there is an explosion in the other, so so there are the refrigerator trucks, which are all the supermarkets plus a cardo. Mm -hmm. And then there are the parcel trucks, which are a whole other bunch of companies. So it's DPD. It's a post office and it's DPD and it's Amazon and it's a couple of other things, but that's sort of basically the story. Um, but it's just a whole other, a whole other model yeah. um, sort of existing in parallel. Do you, so Amazon's pretty dominant there in the UK and obviously in the US doing really well. Do you, do you see anything slowing them down or, or how do they fit into that framework you just laid out? So, I think, well, I'd sort of propose maybe another framework. So so I think like the way I, I always sort of talked about Amazon is, you know, this cliche that, that e-commerce has infinite shelf space. And I'd say that's not quite right for Amazon. Amazon has one shelf that's infinitely long. And so everything they sell has to fit onto the same shelf and be sold in exactly the same way through exactly the same website and exactly the same logistics in the same kind of boxes. And the, like, the story of the last 20, 25 years is converting more and more product categories to discover people are willing to buy it like that. Where, uh, you know, start with books, but it turns out there's an awful lot of other categories that you wouldn't have thought people would buy like that, but it turns out they are willing to buy like that. Um, And then the other side of e-commerce is, um, yes, people will buy it online, but not like that. So you need a completely different web experience different kind of recommendation or service or you need to have free returns or it needs to be hand delivered or whatever it is but it needs to be something other than the amazon commodity logistics model and so i mean you see this in the kind of the market share that you know there are sort of people who are under the impression that e-commerce is 75 percent of retail and amazon is 110 percent of that but of course it isn't um you know amazon has got sort of seven or eight percent of u.s retail it's got a bit less than half of depending on how you count it sort of it's got sort of 40 45 percent of of u.s e-commerce and it's kind of the same in britain um maybe a bit higher i can't remember um rather unsurprisingly you look at the share in lockdown and the the online only retailer share went down as a share of e-commerce um, but there's that whole other question of like, well, what are the other ways of buying this? Um, which I always think, you know, basically, you know, what's old is new and Amazon is a new Walmart and Amazon Walmart converted a whole bunch of stuff into Walmart and Amazon is converting a whole bunch of stuff into Amazon, but it doesn't follow that everything becomes that. Right. What are some of the other modes? Um, so you mentioned like Uber eats and food delivery, which is kind of a different mode. What are some of the other modes that, that you're seeing? Well, so I think, I mean, just sort of mechanistically, there's parcel, and then there's truck brings it to you, there's you go and get it, and then there's guy on a bike, always this guy, like, kid on bike brings it to you. There's also sort of orthogonal to that, the sort of, sorry, that's a very Silicon Valley word, but sort of, sort of next to that, um, you've got, like, um, I should say societal next to sound clever. Um, you've also got, like, um, free returns or subscriptions um or um subscriptions where you get 10 things that you don't know what where you don't know what you're going to get 
Um, and so there's lots of different kind of merchandising and retailing models um, that are quite distinct from the Amazon merchandising and retailing model, which is like, you know, what, you know, you can have any color you want as long as it's black. Do you uh, so one that uh, that we've been following closely is live streaming, which is you know kind of caught fire in China. But as you know, some of these things they kind of catch fire in China and they they stay in China. They don't you know so like um you know uh, what I would call chat commerce is a big thing in China and hasn't really kind of made it out there. Do you, do you see live stream becoming one of those, or are you seeing any evidence of that like in Europe? So I think a lot of people are trying it. Mm-hmm. So it's clearly on everyone's experiment list for this year. Um, will it work? I don't know. Um, I mean, I think there's like a general puzzle I have looking at China, which again is sort of on my list to write about. Um, I read about it as a column in my newsletter, but I should write about it again. It's like sometimes I feel so. This is why we're saying this. So, like, I started my when I started my career, um, mobile internet was everyone was very excited about mobile internet, but it didn't actually exist anywhere except in Japan where the Japanese operators had launched this thing called iMode and equivalents of iMode, which was a phone that had a packet switch network and an internet connection, and it was unmetered. Or no, it was, was it metered? I can't remember. Anyway, it was cheap. And they had an app store, and you could look at stuff on your phone, and you had like a big, not even color screen, but it was like a big screen with lots of text. And it was amazing. And there were like millions of people using this, and the chart was going up and to the right, and it was amazing. And there were kind of two sort of lessons from this. The first is that IMO turned out to be a dead end. It wasn't actually the future. The second was um, that you couldn't actually find out what was going on except like at third hand because you couldn't use the product yourself. You couldn't read the language. You know, you couldn't read the like discussion of it by informed people because it was all in Japanese. You couldn't go there because it was like $5,000 to go there. And even if you did go there, you still couldn't use the product because you weren't a Japanese resident. You couldn't buy the phone. Um, and so everything was sort of a third hand. And you'd hear this stuff about this amazing stuff that was happening in Japan. You wouldn't quite know, okay, A, is that actually what's happening? And B, what predictive value does that have? Is it like, I don't know, it's like you go to a country, another country on holiday and you see a retailer that you think, oh, that's really cool. I wish we had that at home. But you know it wouldn't work. Like you couldn't take that retailer and just do it in LA and expect it to work. Mm-hmm. And which is sort of the thing I sort of wonder as I look at all the, sort of this is a sort of parallel to this in looking at, at China. We say, how much of this is, how much of this is being accurately described in the first place? <laughs> because that was the whole problem with like the whole bot thing three and four years ago. Everyone said, oh, WeChat is amazing and it's all about bots. And Chinese people said, like, no, it isn't. It's not about bots at all. <laughs> and the other piece is, like, how predictive is this? How much of this is about Japan, the Chinese market structure and leapfrogging traditional retail and, like, five other criteria about how that market is set up? And it wouldn't necessarily work here. And maybe the third step is, which is is one of the things I think is interesting about Clubhouse, is is it that you take that core concept, but you do it in a completely different way? So Clubhouse looks a lot like stuff that was happening in Japan, sorry, in China a couple of years ago, but, it, but it's also completely Americanized. You know, it doesn't have 800 things on the screen, and, you know, it's not that visual overload that you get with to European eyes. looks like that's how, that's how Europeans see Chinese apps. They're like, oh, my God, there's so much stuff on the screen. But it has tipping and subscription, and it's not ad-based in the same way, and you pay for content. And so I think that's like a generalized thing I wonder as I look at all of this stuff in China. You have like eight or 900 million people. You have a huge number of all the smartphones. You have a huge number of entrepreneurs scrambling over each other, frenzied innovation, creation, copying of every kind. Of course, there's going to be amazing ideas coming out of there. But it's a big jump to go from that to look at one particular company and say, well, that will work here. Yeah, it's interesting. As as you're explaining it, like I'm also thinking like I notice there's a very often a fishtail version of of this, too. Right. That the. The real numbers that were already impressive in China for, you know, some like different behaviors than we see here keep getting amplified every time someone tells the story. So like, you know, live streaming commerce is 70 percent of all commerce in China. And, you know, WeChat is 50 percent of all commerce in China and all these things that are like objectively not true. Yeah. And you can't tell. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I so anyone can make up any old bollocks about what's happening in China and people will believe it. Oh, man. Yeah. Until recently. Uh, and, I, you know, I was desperate to understand these real experiences. And so I have a lot of Chinese coworkers and I, I they were super patient with me. Um, 
sort of like annotating screenshots from from various apps and things. Um, but uh, to your point, like it was impossible for me to experience um, Alipay, for example, right? Because you 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 literally need a Chinese bank that an American citizen could not get. Like that very recently is not true. But like all of those digital wallets were not available to Westerners. And when you take digital wallets out of all of these ecosystems, the experience is wildly different. Yeah, exactly. Which is to my point, it's exactly like trying to understand I made 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'd be like looking at pictures and and stuffing stuff through Google translate. If that even existed then and trying to work out how this works. Yep. I, I, I've sat in a number of meetings at Best Buy when we're talking about if we should have a WAP browser and using the wildly successful iMode example. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, uh, so I do want to uh, half pivot, I guess, uh, still on Amazon. Another topic that comes up a lot, and I, I know you you have a, a, a strong perspective on it, um, is this whole notion of uh, Amazon private label. And, and you've done some some awesome writing that Scott and I have both enjoyed talking about, you know, what a, a miraculous new invention private label is since Amazon invented it a few a few weeks ago. Um, and uh, what its potential implications are in antitrust. Can you kind of give us your primer there? Yeah, well, so I think it's kind of interesting. So um, there's this kind of trope of attacking tech companies where you say, you idiot, you invented this thing that already existed. So people looked at LiftLine and said, you invented buses. And the funny thing is when people complain about private label, my reaction is you can back congratulations, you invented retailing because there's this book that I kind of talk about quite often by Zola from the 19th century called Bonheur des Dames, The Happiness of Women, which is basically a novel about the creation of Bon Marché. And it's the creation of department stores in the 1860s, 1870s. And the central character basically turns a draper's shop into a department store through force of will over like 10 years. And there's whole like pages and pages in this book about um, return on capital and stock days um, and, um, you know, working capital. And um, he invents loss leaders. And there's like two pages where his staff are saying, but we're losing money on every yard of this. And he says, yes, I know that's the point. And he invents free returns. And of course, and fixed prices, because you can't have a discount until you've got a fixed price and free returns and catalogs. And um, meanwhile, the, the, the shopkeepers on the other side of the street are saying, like, have you seen what that maniac is doing? He's selling hats and gloves in the same shop. He's got no morals. It's indecent. And you read this thing and it's like, this is people describing Amazon. This is Amazon. You know, this is this person who's creating this different way of packaging up all this business um, and selling it in different ways and innovating furiously on every different aspect of it. Um, but one of the points is that the um, the thing that he's selling as a loss leader is a private label fabric. And you kind of, you you go and you look in, I mean, maybe this is a point about, you know, UK versus American retail. Like I never would have occurred to me that you wouldn't know that supermarkets are full of private label product. And you go and look at the history of this and like the FTC wrote this like 100 page report in the early 30s on chain store private label brands. And guess what? It's like a quarter of of all retail sales in the US are private label brands in the early 30s. And so I think the sort of the interesting thing here is to say, look, this the stuff that you're describing at the most basic level, has been a part of retail for 150 years. Every retailer does this. Most retailers do it way more than Amazon. It's like 1% or 2 or 3% of Amazon sales. It's 20 to 30% of sales and most retailers you've heard of, except for the gap where it's 100%. But, you know, Target, Macy's, Walmart, it's 10, 20, 30% of sales. And so, so the question here is, like, is it that you just didn't know this happened and you're shocked and astonished to find out about it? Is it somehow different when Amazon does it? And of course, it's different in some sense, because like Amazon is in a supermarket. But is it different in some kind of meaningful sense? Because like, yes, of course, they have scale. They do. So does Walmart. Yes, of course, they look at the data of what's selling in their store. Yes, well done. So does every other retailer. They have computers too. They know what they sell. Is it that they're looking at what you're searching for, but not buying? And that's a different kind of data to the data that Walmart has. Well. Maybe, but how how big a deal is that as opposed to the fact that they're just competing with their suppliers like all retailers? 
Um, is this actually just a moral panic? Is it that you had no idea this existed, you're shocked to discover it, and you think it's amazing and evil because you think Amazon is amazing and evil? Um, or is there genuinely something different about the way that Amazon does this that matters? Um, or, of course, do you think that all our retailers should be stopped from doing this? And you can say that, but you do have to understand that that's like a third of Costco you've just banned. And so I think those are the sort of the interesting questions. Of course, they intersect with the kind of the joke that I made earlier, that there are people who think that Amazon is sort of like 45, 50, 75% of American retail. So you do actually have to understand now Amazon is roughly the same size, the same size as Walmart. You know, it doesn't have a monopoly. But then it does have a monopoly in certain very specific areas. You know, there are certain businesses where Amazon only is the only channel, not just in private label, but, you know, in books. You know, does Amazon have a, does Amazon have market dominant, dominant, does Amazon have market dominance in grocery? Obviously not. Does it have market dominance in books? Obviously yeah, no, it's it's super interesting, and it's funny. I I was um, I found myself in a a mild Twitter feud uh, on this topic uh, this week that I had to retreat from because um, I I sort of made the the same point you did that you know hey Amazon has like one percent penetration and you know twenty five to fifty is not is not uncommon so Amazon's the worst private labeler in the history of retail at the moment, um, and then uh. You know, we were talking about the various categories of private label and and I pointed out that the interesting thing to me are the desirable, unique products that retailers are starting to invent that are own brands. Right. And so I, I use uh, Target has a bunch of good examples of this, like Cat and Jack is their apparel brand. But my hypothesis was like arguably the most successful version of this recently is the uh, as I hit mute, the Alexa, um, <laughs> the you know, which is essentially a private label product that that Amazon invented and uh, a bunch of people at Twitter like push back and they're like that that's not a private label product that's something you know Amazon invented the 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 whole category like and uh I don't know I'm like oh so Amazon invented the bluetooth speaker that's interesting um but but uh you so know or, invented the clock radio yeah exactly and so but but I did realize like you know is there a way in which they did an interesting mashup and that unlocked um you know huge demand sure right like i, I it's an impressive product but it's um it that that whole space is super interesting and the same people that are pushing back and going like oh this is you know uncompetitive unfair behavior uh certainly enjoy their Kirkland uh five pound bags of nuts and they certainly enjoy their their Alexa and you know you go back to the history of retail, all retail started out as the the product inventor selling their own product, right? Like wholesale is, an, is a much newer invention. Yeah. I mean, I think the, so sort of specific and a general point. So the specific point is, I think the interesting thing about Amazon Marketplace is that if you're a super thoughtful, innovative, creative sort of regulator, if that's not in any sense an oxymoron, um, you would propose that Amazon be obliged to provide wholesale access to its logistics and its e-commerce. Like if that's your, if you think Amazon is a monopoly or if you think Amazon is guilty of market abuse, what's your remedy? Well, they have to provide wholesale access to the logistics and the website. And guess what? They do. In fact, that's 60% of the business. Yeah, um, yeah. And I think the the interesting sort of general point is here um, and this is sort of a point I make sort of more generally talking about regulation is like the the kind of the eye-catching, hand-waving, sloganeering stuff generally falls apart when you start asking questions. So like, let's break up Google. Okay, into what and what problem does that solve? YouTube is still YouTube. It still doesn't have any competition. Let's break up Facebook. Okay, that doesn't stop teenage girls looking at self-harm content on Instagram. Um, those are different kinds of problem. The stuff that's going to hurt is um, regulating where the buy box can appear around marketplace. It's, you know, regulating the price that Amazon charges for shipping for marketplace. And in the same way, it's going to be, you know, the, the antitrust stuff that's going to hurt is going to be digging deep inside the mechanics of the ad marketplaces and finding some loosely worded email and finding Google $10 billion and making them sell double click. You know, it's stuff that doesn't make a great book title that takes 20 minutes to explain what the fuck just happened. If I'm allowed to say that it takes 20 minutes to just, it's the stuff that takes 20 minutes to explain what happened and turns out to be 15% of Google's profits. 
that's where I think most of the regulatory staff will actually bite. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I know we're running up against time and we want to be, uh, you know, we're thankful that you took time uh, out of your schedule to talk to us. The, I didn't want to end without talking about just kind of at a macro sense, um, your, your latest mega presentation was around the great unbundling. So maybe, uh, tease listeners with kind of what, what is that? And maybe one example of, of something coming out of the great unbundling. Yeah, well, it's always kind of a challenge to, you know, talk about what's happening and what's changing in tech for either more than one minute or less than two hours. Um, <laughs> yeah. You can either say, look, everything's going to be software, or you, <laughs> or you go off and you spend an hour and a half talking about what's happening in Indonesia, you know, like, yeah. mm-hmm. and digital transformation and all kinds of other stuff that I didn't even mention. Um, I think the kind of the core thing that I want to talk about was, and this is great, and I started with this quote from one of the owners of Kraft Heinz, where he said, I'm a terrified dinosaur. I thought I was in a world of kind of efficiency and old brands and profit maximization, and now suddenly everything's being disrupted. And I think you could kind of generalize this to like everything in retail and e-commerce is clearly breaking apart and no one knows what the new stability will look like. Meanwhile, because you have this completely different channel, that totally changes everything in CPG, everything in brand, everything in consumer product, because suddenly the way that you sell it completely changes and that creates all sorts of different kinds of competition and different kinds of product. And then third, very obviously, the whole world of advertising is breaking apart, like Google and Facebook between them are now probably half or more of total US advertising, maybe more. I can't remember the number now. Um, and so like this, this, we've gone from this world of basically creativity and telling stories to being data. Um, and meanwhile, Netflix doesn't have ads. Um, and so like the whole world of brand has changed, the whole world of retail is changing, the whole world of um, advertising is changing. And of course, TV as well is completely, completely broken apart now. And, you know, where are the shows going to be? What channel are the channels going to be? What are the aggregators going to be? And in all of these things, the kind of the model is like you used to have this very clearly defined data market where you had the people who made things and the people who aggregated and sold it. And now that's all been broken apart. And all the people who used to sell to aggregators, whether that's TV companies or retailers um, or um, you know, any kind of data market, and now like, okay, well, we've got completely different aggregators and also maybe we should be going direct. And everyone wants the customer relationship. Most of those companies, however, most consumer brands are actually not consumer businesses. They've never, they don't actually sell makeup. They sell trucks full of makeup to Walmart or Sephora. Like they've, ne- they've never actually been a B2C business. Um, and now suddenly they all need to th- think about whether they should be a B2C business. And if not, what are all the new B2C businesses that will completely take over their channel? And what, how much data they should have and what they should do with their data and what all of this means. And so there's this great quote from Craig Jim Barksdale from like 25 years ago, that there's only two ways to make money in business, bundling and unbundling. And what's happening now is like everything across brand, retail, consumer products, advertising, TV is being unbundled. And it's going to get rebundled at some point in some ways, but we don't know what. Yeah, I find myself, I've got 20 subscriptions, right, to all these different things. So now I need someone to go aggregate that for me. Yeah, <laughs> right. I, I unplugged my cable thing because it got too expensive, but I'm spending just as much. But now I'm having to manage 20 subscriptions. Yeah, exactly. And so with the point earlier, it's like the remaking of retail around the freeway or the remaking of retail around electricity and around elevators and department stores. You know, it's another of these sort of generational resets of how all of this stuff works. Um, and like all the cars are thrown up in the air. No one knows where they're all going to land. Not everybody is going to have a D2C business in five years' time. And that applies in Hollywood as much as it does in cereal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then it's kind of fun to think through. So in the world of e-commerce, you know, all these brands are going direct, which is interesting. And and But then, you know, from a consumer standpoint, where does it stop? Because you don't want to go to 80 different websites to get that one brand, you know, uh, to the extreme example, you know, there's, there's a benefit to the grocery store of having one place that has all these brands aggregated. Um, so, you know, we're kind of in an unbundling phase. And then I wonder, is there a new model that comes along and, and is the bundling or does Amazon kind of become the bundler? Do you, do you have a point of view on where that goes? Well, so I think clearly, you know, so it's different, different ways to think about this. So one of them is clearly not everyone's going to be able to go direct. And a lot of stuff will collapse back in. I think the, the way that WWF, WWE, the wrestling people, rolled back into a bundle was interesting. 
because you would think that would be a standalone brand that would be able to do that. And they decided it didn't work. Um, Disney can. Um, Sony can't. Like, can Sony build its own direct-to-consumer subscription video business? Probably not. So what do Sony Pictures do? Um, so there's a lot of those sort of questions. I think there's a sort of a subtext within this, and maybe another layer in this is I had this wrote this thing sort of four or five years ago that I called Lists of the New Search. And I she showed a slide to a company the other day, and I had a picture on the one hand of Macy's from like 1910, you know, the, the store, the biggest store in the world. And on the other hand, there's a store in Tokyo that just sells one book. And like they change it once a week and they've got a table piled of copies and they'll tell you about the book. And the kind of the question is like, how do you find a product? So if you go to this store, they only sell one book. So like you don't have a discovery problem, but you've got to know that the short store exists, which basically means either advertising or they're paying rent in the right part of Tokyo. And so the, that part of Tokyo is the aggregator. Or you can be in the multi-brand boutique and you're not quite as hard to find, but that boutique has to find you and has to choose you and you still have to know about the boutique. Or you can be in Macy's and then like, okay, you're going to be a bit difficult to find that, but you're not going to unlikely to walk past that product now. Or you can be in Amazon and you're one of however many hundred million SKUs and you'll never like walk past it. You have to know what you want. Um, And so, but if you're in Amazon and you have to know, then how do I know it exists? Well, I read about it in Vogue or I read about it in Wallpaper or GQ or somewhere. And so there's this sort of sense that like you can either be this carefully curated thing, but how do you find the curation? Or you can be in this vast thing that has everything, but then how do you find it? And the answer is, well, some other kind of curation. But there's like there's not like an answer to that. There's just kind of a pendulum that swings back and forth. Yeah, it, it's fascinating to me. It's like uh, kind of putting a historical retail lens on it again, like in a – in a earlier world when there were was a choice of three hammers to buy, like you you could bundle discovery of hammers with consideration of hammers and fulfillment of hammers, right? And that's what independent hardware stores did. And then the the B and O's of the world or the the Home Depots of the world said, Hey, now there's a hundred hammers and it actually became way harder to discover and pick a hammer because they did such a good job of bundling fulfillment uh and distribution of all these hammers. When Amazon makes eight eighty thousand different hammers available, uh, they they can they simply cannot also be the point where you discover and uh, decide on hammers. And so I actually think it's uh, bundling fulfillment in some of these things or, or purchase in some of these things has created new unbundlings of discovery. Um, and so it, you know that's an interesting space to me in commerce right now is how 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 many. Products used to be discovered on the shelf of a of a grocery store and are now being discovered in a TikTok video or whatever else. Yeah, I mean, and I think a lot of this is pop culture, which is to the point about you know will live streaming work? I don't know. That's like saying will that new fa- fashion magazine for teenage girls work? Like, I don't know. Maybe ask somebody who knows a lot about that. Um, and in its pop culture and its retailing and merchandising, it's not really a technology question. Um, and it, it's also, I mean, the, you know, the, maybe another way of thinking about this is that, like, in 1800, there was, you know, a very finite amount of product. And there was also a very limited number of customers, you know, a number of people who were actually kind of consumers in any really meaningful sense was probably like a couple of thousand people in each country. And then the Industrial Revolution happens and suddenly you have infinite product and you also have, like, many more consumers. Um, and then you have, but you have the gatekeeper of the logistics on the retailing, and the, which is either the retailer or the media to tell you what to buy. So it's the, the, the gatekeepers are the newspapers and magazines on the one hand and the retailer on the other side, and maybe the retailer's wholesaler behind them. Um, and so you have infinite product and customers, but you have this gatekeeping function, this aggregation function. And now, now you don't. You know, now it's Google or it's Amazon, and Amazon has however many hundred million SKUs or it's Alibaba, and they say there's infinite product and infinite choice. And that almost gets that gets you to the bookstore that only sells one book. I mean, I, I remember years ago reading about a, a denim store in Tokyo that was called Not Found because they didn't want to, to show up in Google. They wanted it to be impossible to find them in Google. And you almost feel like there's almost like an arts and crafts moment now where like in 1800, if you said, I want something handmade, that didn't mean anything. In 1900, if you say, I want something handmade, that, that becomes a very meaningful statement. 
you know, I want to step out of mass production. And I sometimes feel like there's a lot of different strands in um, popular culture now that are sort of about stepping out of the firehose. It's sort of what Etsy is as well, isn't it? But it's what Instagram is getting at. There's a lot of sort of ways that are trying to get you away. It's not just a search box. It's something else. Yeah, I remember the early days of uh, Etsy. Everyone thought they were crazy because the the handmade category on eBay was like twenty million, and they're like, "You can't." It's not venture backable. The TAM isn't big enough, <laughs> and now it's like two billion dollars in GMV. Yeah, well, that's like that guy who said that the TAM for Uber is taxi cabs. It's like, yeah, uh, no. Yeah, what do you think about scooters? The TAM is walking. Do you buy that? Do you buy that <laughs> argument? I don't know. Um... <laughs> There's Are they a thing in London or is well, London like Horace's whole, whole thing? I always moved on from mobile to, to talking about this. Um, we're clearly in a moment around bicycles. Um, there's a, clearly a shift in electric changing what that can mean um, and changing the practicality of that and massively broadening that. And there's a shift in sort of popular consensus around what roads should look like, which means that scooters and bikes can become much safer and much more practical. Um, how big is a scooter? And a bike has some practicality in that, like it's you know you can fold it up so it doesn't take the space that a bike, the whole bicycle does. Maybe, you know, I mean, there's a business there. How big a business is everybody on earth going to have one? I don't know. You know, I couldn't have used one to commute 35 miles a day to Menlo Park from San Francisco. Um, but I can certainly see that filling a segment. In the same way that, like, it's, I don't know, maybe it's like being in, like, 1975 and saying, do you think hatchback small cars are going to work? And the answer is, well, for some people in some places. It's never a very fulfilling answer, though. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's the answer is sort of, yes, maybe for some people. It's never going to be. It depends. Binary. Exactly. Well, this is, I, you know, I studied history at university and I know the um, master of my college, um, Hugh Trevor Roper, is sort of famous for saying, history teaches us nothing except that something will happen. Like it's uh, always different. Yeah. Um, hey, I know we're coming up on time. Uh, maybe one, one last question, uh, pivoting as far away from history as possible. Um, all this interesting innovation, is there anything in particular that you're excited about for the future of commerce? Like, is there... Is there one of these trends or technologies that you're more more bullish on than others? Um, I think there's like a whole, I hate this, is such an overused term, but it's convenient. Um, there's a sort of a Cambrian explosion in every kind of remote work, every kind of video and collaboration and interaction when you're not in the same room. And what do you do that it would be better than video? And there is also a Cambrian explosion in every kind of sense of what would e-commerce be how would it work what does physical retail look like if it's no longer the end point to a logistics chain so again a horrible word experiential huge amount of people thinking about retail as experience events as experience what does it mean if the alternative if it's if it's always easier to get it by amazon or to buy online what 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 is the reason you create to go to the store if it's easier to buy it on amazon what's the reason you create to put it on the website if people aren't buying that online, what would you put, what would you change? What online experience would you create to change that? And I think the kind of the lockdown has been this sort of catalyst of just maybe just like the realization, like everyone is online. Everyone will buy anything online. There is no product that people will not buy online if you can't come up with the right experience. And so we've got this sort of huge wave of innovation coming in the next year, two years, three years around working out what that means. It's just like all the things that come after Zoom, which is a bit like all the stuff that happened with voice after Skype. All the stuff that comes because out of that realization that there's just going to be so many sort of interesting models and interesting ways of doing this. Yeah, uh, that that is interesting. It's it's um it's going to be a, a fascinating era for all of us to live through. That's for sure. I'm 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 grateful we're in a time of such such a, a interesting and fascinating disruption. Uh, but Benedict, that's going to be a great place to leave it because it's happened again. Um, we have uh, used up a perfectly good hour of our listeners' time. Uh, as always, if uh, you have any questions or comments about the things we discussed on the show, we'd love it if you'd leave us a. Uh, a comment on our Facebook page or hit us on our Twitter feed. 
Um, and uh, for sure, if you enjoyed this show, we sure would appreciate it if you jump on iTunes and uh, give us that five-star review. Benedict, thanks for coming today. If folks want to find you online, uh, you're you're pretty uh, much everywhere, but what's what's kind of the best gateway that you give folks? Oh, well, if you Google me, my parents had good SEO, so Benedict Evans will take you to my website, which is benevans, ben-evans.com, and there's, there's various sort of things you can do there. Yeah, yeah, I, I share that with you. Um, Jason does not. Uh, yeah, Scott, Scott's parents either had great SEO or were very bad spellers. They're efficient. They're yeah, efficient. or perhaps perhaps both. Uh, but but uh, really enjoyed the chat. Uh, uh, thanks so much. We'll put a link to your Ben Evans in the show notes. Thank you. And until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 